in today's show. And I'd find one dealer that was really knocking the ball out of the park, uh, selling cars and trucks. And I'd take some of those key learnings and I'd bring that around to, to other dealers and help them. And so for me, being successful is helping other people be successful, learning what it takes, failing repeatedly, and then learning how I have to change and be a better person. Today anymore, for me, a good company culture is about growth, change, accountability, alignment, and fit. Those are the five things today that make a company successful. And those are the things that have made my life successful. So I just steal from my own life and what I've had to go through and uh, growth, change, accountability, uh, you know, alignment and fit. That's it. If those are working, you're working. In today's ultra-competitive business world, being a successful entrepreneur or business owner can be very challenging. Fortunately, contemporary times have blessed us with resources for tackling those challenges and getting us to success more quickly than we could have imagined. Welcome to The Root of All Success with the real Jason Duncan, a podcast that explores how the world's most powerful entrepreneurs grow incredible companies. This podcast looks at the five keys to unlocking success as an entrepreneur. A successful educator turned entrepreneur, Jason's mission is to use his gifts of teaching and leadership to help others get the results they want out of life. Join Jason every week and learn the keys to grow a truly successful business. Welcome back to another edition of The Root of All Success. I'm the real Jason Duncan coming to you from our studio at Energy Lighting Services here in Hendersonville, Tennessee. We don't record here often. We've, it's actually the only third day that we've recorded here ever. And uh, I want to give a shout out to my assistant, Wendy, because today I thought this started later than it did. And I got here late and she already had most of this set up. So it's, it's quite an ordeal to set all this stuff up. For those of you that also do podcasting, and I know some of our listeners also podcast, uh, you know how big of a deal it is to set up the cameras and the lights and the chairs and all the, the sound equipment. So she did a great job. So Wendy is amazing. So I'm glad she did that. But welcome to the show. We've got I've got a great guest for you today that I'm excited to talk about for two very specific reasons. Uh, the first reason, of course, is just like any other guest, he's a very successful entrepreneur and I can't wait to talk about his success. But the second reason is a success is a lot in an industry that I'm about to go into. So I'm going to selfishly use this opportunity to dig into his experiences and how they might, uh, ref I might reflect some of those experiences as I begin my adventure in that. And I'll tell you a little bit more about him in just a second. But I first want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. And if you're not watching this on YouTube, you really should go take a look at this because we record all of these, whether we do it live like we're doing today in person or whether we do it on Zoom. They're all on YouTube and C-Suite TV. So you can go to C-Suite TV and just search for The Root of All Success, or you can go to YouTube and search for The Root of All Success, or you can go straight to my channel, youtube.com slash Duncan. I've got lots of content specifically for entrepreneurs, leaders, business leaders on financial literacy, sales, et cetera. But one of my playlists on there is The Root of All Success in all my episodes. I think Clark's at guest number 89 that I've had on the show. So there's lots of guests that you can go back and watch and listen to. If you're listening to this in your car, driving, you're out walking your dog, whatever it is you're doing, also want to thank you for doing that. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review because those reviews and subscriptions help get our show in front of more people. And the more people that we get in front of, the more impact we can make, the more success people can enjoy. So thank you for doing and that and taking a little bit of time to do that. So now, without any further ado, let me introduce you to my guest today, Clark Batuli. So, so Clark, I got a really long and amazing introduction for him, but I'm going to give you the synopsis and then we're going to dig into this as we get in here. But let me tell you how, how we met. So we were introduced through um, a mutual acquaintance, Amanda Banks, I think. So shout out to Amanda if you're listening. Thank you for introducing me to Clark. And we had lunch. Clark and I had lunch here in Nashville I don't know, it was probably a year and a half ago, Clark, I think maybe. And we just sat down and got to talking and I didn't know he was in, had been in the motorcycle industry. So what you're gonna find today is that Clark is, and I'm gonna read some of this stuff, and I typically don't read these, but he's been a uh, chief executive officer within the Vistage group. So if you're familiar with Vistage, it's a group for business leaders, entrepreneurs, CEOs. And he's been leading that one for quite some time. It's called Music City Chief Executives. 
It's a Better Business Bureau company. He's been honored by the Better Business Bureau. He's won so many awards. I mean, some of this stuff, he's just five-time winner of the Vista's Chair of Excellence Award. He's now a master chair. He's also won Rookie of the Year Award, author Vistage, and he's helping over 70 business leaders here in the Nashville area. And they're doing over, what is it, five, $3.1 billion in contracts and business. So this guy is working not only in his own right doing business as an entrepreneur and as an executive, but is leading 70 other executives just like you here in the Nashville market to do over $3 billion in business. Um, he's been with several different companies over his over his years, mostly in the power sports, boating, RV world, and uh, one of those was Harley Davidson of St. Augustine, where during his tenure as the uh, owner of that dealership, they were voted best dealership in St. Augustine, best dealership in Jacksonville. They were in the Dealer News Top 100 Dealer, and uh, they won that four times in a row, four years in a row, and that's the only HD dealership in the state of Florida that's ever won that. And if you know motorcycles, there's a lot of HD, big HD dealerships down there in, in Florida. So that's a that's quite an honor. He also had a company called America's Power Sports, APS, that he founded in 1998. And during his tenure there, he ended up acquiring over 17 different dealerships. And they had brands such as Harley-Davidson, Honda, BMW, Yamaha, Suzuki, Polaris, Sea-Doo. Um, he, he, and the, his profits at his dealerships had over two and a half, they were two and a half times greater than the industry average. So he was doing something right. He was making a difference. And he had 600, I think it was 663 brands, but he had, how many employees was it? 635, yeah, 635 employees. That's a lot of people to manage. And, and so what you'll see in our story with Clark today is that not only has he done startups and he's helping other people do that, but he's also managed nationwide organizations. He also worked with Outboard Marine Corporation. They recruited him to be their uh, president of their boat group. Uh, he's worked with Mark III Industries. For those of you that know that, that's in the RV industry. They do van, truck and van conversions. And so they recruited him there to work there as its president and CEO. And he left that to go do some consulting assignments in Korea and Saudi Arabia, just you know, down the street. And then um, he was also with Mazda Motor Corporation of America as his executive VP and chief operating officer. And while he was there, he helped uh, launch six new cars and trucks, and they had growth and dealer satisfaction that hasn't been experienced since or prior to his being a part of that. And he also was work, he worked at Chrysler Corporation as a district manager in Florida. Um, he had managed positions in Florida, DC, Detroit and California. And while he was there, he got to work directly with Lee Iacocca, which I want to ask some questions about that because that guy's a, he's a legend in the business world. So he's coached, uh, coached internationally, coached nationally. He's coaching a lot of people. He's supportive of nonprofits like the uh, Second Harvest Food Bank, Wounded Warriors, Humane Society, Cancer Society, and Tucker House, among others. He's got a wife named Christy, two adult sons. He, they live here in Nashville. Uh, he's got a, he's got all kinds of degrees from all these different universities. He he speaks guest lectures at Vanderbilt and Lipscomb here in Nashville, and uh, it's just an honor to have him on the show. So Clark, welcome to the show, man. That's a that's an Thank impressive you. background. My Great man. being with you. I got to run, so <laughs> you got it all. <laughs> you nailed well, it. Well, for somebody in their twenties, this is this, you've been you've been busy. <laughs> Yes, I have. <laughs> well, thank you for being here. It's an thank honor you to know me. you. Um, you know, when Amanda introduced us, she she I remember I remember the day she called. She's like, "Hey, I just met this guy. It'd be great for your podcast." And and uh, I don't even know how you guys met, but but she said, "You guys, you just need to meet him." Well, I had no idea, but I trust Amanda, and I trusted what she would recommend. She's so great. we had, yeah. we had lunch at uh, I think J. Alexander's down yeah. on the West End, and yeah. and uh, it was great. And then. I think the world was falling apart or fell apart right there soon after, and yeah. we we stayed in touch, and here we are, man. Glad we did. Yeah. So, impressive background, obviously, but if you go back to the beginning, when you first noticed your entrepreneurial spirit kind of creeping up, was it as a child, was it as a teenager, an adult, where did that start, and what was it like? I was 10. And uh, my mom and dad had gotten divorced uh, when I was younger. I was either too ugly or too stupid or something, and they didn't, they didn't want me, and they were fighting over me and all that good stuff. And, and my mom uh, had my two brothers, uh, two older brothers, and I uh, moved to Florida. Uh, I was born in Brooklyn. My dad lived in Brooklyn, so he decided to stay there. Uh, mom and the kids moved down to Florida. And um, when I was about 10, I wanted to see my dad in the summer, so she would put me on a train and say, okay, you're off to uh, New York, 
Dad would pick me up at Grand Central Station and we'd spend a fabulous summer together. We'd go fishing, I'd go to work with him and so forth, he was an interior decorator. And uh, we just had a great time. And so it was back and forth every summer from 10 to 18 uh, till I graduated high school that those opportunities to meet different people, travel on a train by myself as a kid, uh, all the people that my dad introduced me to up in New York and, and, uh, and my mom down in, in Florida. And it was just a great thing. And, and it gave me a sense of independence, if you will, that I was doing that by myself as a kid. Um, I thought it was exciting. I really wasn't afraid of anything and just took it a day at a time. It so that's that's pretty. I mean, would you put your ten year old per kid on a on a train to go Hell cross no. country? <laughs> that is crazy. So from what part of Florida was it? Palm Beach, Florida. Oh, okay, so Palm Beach, all the way to. to how Brooklyn. long of a trip was that as a ten year old? A day. A it day. Twenty two oh. hours. Oh, oh yeah, wow. all day, all night, and they told the conductor, "Don't let this guy off. You're going to be stopping at a hundred different places. He gets off nowhere until you end up at Grand Central Station." Well, I guess kids. Do. I see every once in a while on airplanes, or there's a kid yeah. traveling alone. I, I see guess, that today too. I, I couldn't do that. I could not nope. put my kid. Of course, my kids are older now, but I couldn't have. Right. If I'd have had a young child that needed to do that, I'd think, "I'll fly with you, and then I'll fly back by myself alone." Exactly right. But uh, yeah, wow. So ten years old then. through eighteen, you're spending summers in Brooklyn with your dad. Yep. Was he? He said he was an interior decorator. Was he an entrepreneur, or was he working for somebody else? Or he was working for somebody else at that time. Uh, later, uh, opened up a couple of businesses on his own, both in the decorating area, uh, home decorating, and also opened up uh, later in his career and in his life, opened up an ice cream shop. It's just something that he wanted to do, and, and so uh, you know, I thought, wow, how do you do that? Uh, but he did it and was always successful at what he did and, and I loved it and enjoyed it. My mom was a bit of an entrepreneur too. Um, she ran our uh, apartment complex uh, that we lived in. Um, we were poor and we had a one bedroom apartment and there were three boys uh, in the bedroom in three uh, twin beds. My mom slept on the living room couch and that was it for several years all the way through high school. And it was amazing, but that's the way it was. And we learned how to, how to be and how to live and, and survive. And of course, you got to do a lot of entrepreneurial things to be able to live through all that. Yeah. So my mom was great. She was also a dental assistant and then later in real estate. So hello, they were all in different careers, took chances, um, you know, had no money and then built up some money. So I was blessed to see that. Very, very blessed. Well, that's a very interesting background. I mean, I can't imagine living in a one-bedroom apartment, watching your mom sleep on the couch while you and the boys, you and the brothers, got the beds. I didn't know any better. I thought that's what moms did. That's what boys did. And no, I later learned how the hell did she do that? I mean, just incredible. She was an amazing woman. Yeah. Well, and just besides the space issue, you've got <laughs> exactly. you've got privacy. You know, just being you know sleeping in the couch anyway. Well, so when you, so as you went to college, you got your degree in, I think you said a bachelor of science degree in advertising yep. from the University of Florida. Right. And then you went on to get an uh, executive management program at Tuck University at Dartmouth, MBA in organizational management from Trevecca. So what did you intend to do when you went to college to get that advertising degree? I wanted to work for an advertising company. And uh, I liked advertising and I thought it was really cool. But to be honest with you, that's not where I started. Um, I started out in engineering because I wanted to be an engineer too. Shows you what I knew, which was nothing. And talk about entrepreneurial, you wanna be an engineer, then you wanna be in advertising. I wanted to be an engineer until I took a few math courses. <laughs> and then I decided, I don't think I wanna be an engineer. I'm not really good at this. And how I came up with advertising, even though earlier in life I thought that would be cool, I looked at the entire uh, uh, scheme of, of courses and curriculum uh, at uh, the University of Florida and I said, what is the absolute easiest? An idiot could get through this. I just want a degree. I don't even know that I care anymore what it's in, but I gotta have this degree and I know that. And my oldest brother got a degree from University of Miami, later got a PhD and became a professor. And I thought, okay, I, I, I gotta do this. And so that's how I looked at advertising as I, I looked at all the courses. These are no brain, they give, they give a degree for this kind of stuff. This is a no brainer. 
And I did and uh, ended up with a 3.8 grade point average, did great, loved it. Got out of University of Florida and well, what are you gonna do? Well, I gotta work for an ad agency. So I did in Palm Beach. Uh, wars were going on, people were being drafted. I was later drafted. Um, and so let me l work for a local ad agency and I did. Only problem was the owner of the ad agency, a uh, great guy, uh, he had a son by the name of Clark. <clears throat> so all throughout the day, Clark, get in here. All right, is that, is that me or the other Clark? What, what is happening? And things just got a little bit unraveled over time. This is not going to work. Um, at the same time, I was always into cars, and my dad and I in the summer would look at cars and drive cars and stuff. And, and uh, I don't know why, but I picked Chrysler Corporation and applied for a job there. And they said, oh man, um, yeah, we don't have any openings right now, but we'll call you when we do. And it was a month later, we got an opening. Here I am at the ad agency. Do I leave the ad agency, go with them? But now starting to, things are starting to pick up at the ad agency. Uh, told Chrysler, hey man, I'm not ready yet, but I might be in a few months. Can I call you back? Yep, sure. Called them back in a few months. I'm available now. Good, you start Monday. And that was my start at Chrysler. And it was amazing, 19 years with them, loved it. And so this was right out of uh, uh, your uh, undergrad? That's correct. So you're what, 21 years old, 22? 21, 22 years old, that's exactly right. Started with Chrysler and, and they were amazing. Uh, I moved 14 times across country with uh, Chrysler. I'm not talking about you know, Brentwood to uh, Franklin or something like that. I'm talking Washington, D.C., Detroit, California, Detroit, California, Detroit, California. A uh, lot of moves around the country and doing some crazy stuff and loved all of it. Wow. So yeah. so it was during that tenure that you worked with Lee Iacocca? It is. It was my last five years at Chrysler and his first year, five years at Chrysler. He had just been fired from Ford. And I thought, fired? I, I can't imagine ever getting fired. Oh, by the way, I've been fired three times since. Uh, but um, I, I thought that was amazing. And he joins Chrysler and a lot of publicity and press. Well, he had a home in um, Boca Raton, Florida. And I was living in Florida also in New Palm Beach and Boca and all those rich places. Not that we were, uh, but he obviously was. And so I got to meet him and his wife and his two lovely daughters, Kathy and Leah. Um, his wife eventually passed away, unfortunately. Um, and then he got married, I think, two more times. And I've been married three times. So it's entrepreneurial all the way, okay? Um, and my current wife and I have been married now for over 16 years and delightful. She's amazing. So I am very blessed. Uh, but I learned a lot from him. I really did. He had, he had some things that were unusual about him. He would be in meetings and uh, he would remind people to stay stupid. And, and you think about that, stay stupid. But every now and then in some of the meetings and one of the board meetings that I was at, one of his senior vice presidents was kind of bragging about how he was doing in his division. He said, hey, 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 stay stupid. You don't know everything, I don't either, and I'm stupid. So it's important that we stay stupid because see, stupid people, they read more, they listen more, they pay attention more because they know they're stupid, so they wanna get better. And that's what stupid people do. So stay stupid. That was one of his favorite ones. <laughs> and, I, and I saw him do that on two or three different occasions. Oh my God, I, 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 I need to live with that. Um, and I, and I, I loved how he did that. And he had several of them. Another one was, um, uh, was about learning and growing and, um, and being a leader. And sometimes underlings in a department would come to him and talk about, well, you know, I'm not a CEO, so uh, no, 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 time out. You are a CEO. You're the CEO of your department. So you do what you need to do. Uh, you're not the CEO. No, you can't sell the company, but you are a CEO of your department. So act like it and be that CEO. And it's, it's amazing. And those things I will just never, ever forget. Well, there's not very many people in, uh, that have worked directly with Lee Iacocca that I know. So that's pretty cool <laughs> that I'm sitting across from somebody who's done that because he's a, he's a legend. As I said in the intro, he's, he's a legend in the car industry and just in business in general and uh, had, had some pretty strong opinions about stuff, but he also did some great stuff. Because it wasn't, he, he was behind the Mustang like at, when he was that at Ford. That is correct. And then he was behind the Dodge, uh, what was it, the Daytona? 
the Dodge uh, yes, Daytona, and, which was and the minivan uh, started yeah. that whole thing. He wanted to do that at Ford, and Henry Ford's a minivan. That, that's like a brick on. We, what the hell are you talking? No, I think it's really good. Went to Chrysler. Okay, we're going to do it. Invented the minivan there. They became the first to do it. Became amazing and helped save the company. I mean, he he turned the company around. It was done. It was broke. It was over. Chrysler was going away until he got there, and he turned it all around. Yeah, that's crazy. It was fantastic. Yeah. So when did you go from working in the corporate world into your own thing as an entrepreneur, owning your own business? Well, that was after Chrysler, and then I was recruited by Mazda to be the chief operating officer to run Mazda in this country. They actually had two Mazdas at that time, an East Coast Mazda and a West Coast Mazda, and they thought, I don't think this is going to last forever. We need to be one Mazda, but I don't want to pick anybody from the East or the West. I need a new guy or gal to come in and, and run it. And so um, I was one of 15 candidates, and eventually they picked me to do it. Was there for five years. Absolutely loved my Japanese CEO, and he taught me so many great things. And just the Mazda and Japanese culture itself, really different from American companies. And I was so impressed by being there. But the tough part was my boss at Chrysler said, uh, so you're leaving? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so tell Mr. Iacocca that, no, 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 I ain't telling him nothing. You're gonna have to resign to him. No, you're crazy, I can't do that. Oh, yes you can, <laughs> because I'm not telling him. So if you wanna leave, you're gonna have to, and I'm thinking, oh my Lord. And so got an appointment, went to him, told him what I was doing, scared out of my mind. I'd never been scared with Mr. Iacocca before, but, um, yeah, so Lee, here's what's happening. Uh, I was recruited to uh, run Mazda in this country. Oh, Mazda, really? Uh, what are you going to do there? And I said, I'm going to be the COO. And well, congratulations, Clark. I knew you could do that. I think that's amazing. Uh, I think that's beautiful. We're going to see each other at a lot of uh, industry uh, events. And uh, I look forward to that for you. I know you're going to do great. And he didn't beat me up. He didn't swing at me. He didn't kick me out of the room. Uh, it was amazing, but that's the kind of class guy that he was as well. So, so going to a Japanese company, working for a Japanese CEO was, um, was fantastic. It really, it helped me change from the American ways of doing business to the Japanese thought philosophy and how deep they are. You know, you have a, an American person and a Japanese person, they're going to build a house together, not together separately. And they're going to have kind of a race to see who gets there the best and the, and the first. The American guy uh, will have the land bought in two weeks and he'll have the frame put in in another two weeks and he'll have some things put up. And I mean, in six months, it's 90% built. But then he discovers, geez, I didn't do this right and I didn't do that right. So he has to rebuild and fix and rebuild and fix. Yeah, the Japanese person, he won't even have the land bought for six months because he's thoroughly researching and studying how much land do I want, what kind of a house do I want to put on it, and then he does more research and study on the kind of framing and the kind of base that he wants. Well, they both finish in December, but the American house has all kinds of changes in it, and it's just not quite as slick. The Japanese house, it's bulletproof, it's perfect, it's amazing. And those are the kind of things that I learned about, I thought America was the way to go, and it is, and I still believe that, but there's different companies and different cultures that do things differently, and that, that added to my entrepreneurial spirit that there's other ways to do things. And how long were you at Mazda? I led that company for five years, absolutely loved it. And then uh, I was recruited by uh, Mark III Industries. Uh, they were based in Ocala, Florida, which had an interest for me because I was in California with, with Mazda, and here's a way to get back to Florida, so yeah. that'd be kind of cool. Um, so I'm, walk I'm talking with them. Meantime, the CEO at Mazda that I had got sent back to Japan and the person that I thought was going to be coming to replace him is somebody that I was very close with in Japan. Turns out he got stomach cancer, couldn't take the job. They gave it to somebody else who he and I absolutely did not agree with each other on anything for the five years that I was there. So I'm there a month and he's there a month in his new job and he fires me. Okay, no problem at all, except I'm working with this other company in Florida now. So... Uh, 
I got fired from Mazda and uh, had a job waiting for me in Florida, took that CEO job. So within 30 days, I leave one, start another. Uh, again, entrepreneurial in an industry. I didn't have to spell, uh, you know, conversion vans and conversion trucks and not my sweet spot, but learned a lot about it. We had a 200,000 square foot uh, construction company and that's where, where we built these. And it was amazing, learned about quality and what we had to do. And, and when I started there, I think we were, I wanna say we were a number 19 in the industry and uh, we became number one in the industry in the couple of years that I was there. Wow. Really increased sales, increased profits, brought some new people to the company that I knew from the auto industry, really helped us turn that company around and uh, really make some changes and absolutely loved it. Do you think that the industry, just as an aside, because I, I shared a story pre-show with you that I used to work for a competitor of Mark III okay. back, uh, golly, it was in my 20s, Yep. and uh, hated every second of it. It's <laughs> one of the only few jobs that I've walked away from, just like quit. <laughs> like I, I told you, I, dr I drove the conversion van that was my company vehicle to the dealership that day to work. And then I told my wife to come pick me up. I'm not, I'm going, she's had to drive me home and I just left the van. I love I that story. Oh my gosh. That is fantastic. I've never done that. I, I may have to do that in the future. That's too cool. Well, I felt terrible about it, but that, there are lots of extenuating circumstances. But do you think that industry just as an aside is, is kind of still viable or that conversion van and truck thing, or is it still going? What, what was cool about it at that time? And I don't stay with it today. And that was 20 years ago. Um, but all the things that they did on a van or a pickup truck, they really taught the original equipment manufacturers, the OEMs, the Chryslers and Fords and GMs of the world, you need to put this, you need to put a TV there, you need to have stereos in there, you need to have uh, step bumpers on the side so that you can get into those vans and pickup trucks easier. Uh, you need to have more comfortable seats, you need to have seats that change around. And all of those things the OEMs did over time because they watched the conversion companies on what, because we were working tightly with consumers on what they wanted in a conversion van. And we actually did them and performed them. And they realized, you know what? We will increase our sales and profitability if we start adding those things. And today, regular basis, GM, Ford, Chrysler, all their products, they do stuff like that in mm -hmm. their vans and pickup trucks. When I was working with the, that other company, they were out of Fort Worth, Texas. <clears throat> when I was working with them, they uh, part of uh, at that time, GM was uh, starting to do their own first conversion vans, but their windows. The whole our argument against it was that their windows were were on the the uh, belt line rather than lower because the conversion right. vans always had really long windows. That's correct. And they were like, oh no, they'll never do. And you know, I think the windows, the shorter windows, actually look better. Yep. <laughs> on the conversion vans. <laughs> gotcha. But uh, but anyway, that's just an aside. Now, okay, so you go from from uh, Chrysler to Mazda. Mazda is a Mark III. Yes. And the Mark III, what next? We're going to take a break from our show right now to bring you our sponsors. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. All right, thanks for listening to our sponsors. Now back to the show. Yeah, I was fired from there too. Um, <laughs> see, uh, we had- couple, You were doing so good, like you gotta go. You oh, gotta we're go. rocking. I, I didn't know when we got there, the recruiter didn't tell me, the owner of the company didn't tell me, no one told me, they were absolutely broke. There were $2 million in debt. They were losing money left and right. Those were none of the financials that I saw or that anybody talked to me about. And so I'm there a month and I'm realizing all of this happening. I called the recruiter, um, is there something you needed to tell me? I said, no, what's up? And so I told him that story. I said, oh my God, I'll have you replaced in 30 days. Don't worry about it. I feel terrible. This never should have happened. I said, no, you know, I watched, I watched Iacocca turn Chrysler around and I saw some of the things that he had to do. I want to turn this company around. That's what I want to do. That is my shtick now, so I'm going to do it. If I need help in the next six months or something, I'll call you, but nope, I'm staying here and I'm turning this bad boy around. 
And so that was my thing and it became my passion was to turn that company around and, and we did. And that's the case where I brought some people in from the Chryslers that I knew and other companies from the automotive industry that could do things like that. And so we did, we built, built better products, better quality, all kinds of good stuff and, and absolutely loved it. But that's how I left Mark III. So I'm out of Mark III now. God, what am I gonna do now? And um, I get a call from the boating industry that says, okay, you've been in cars, you've been in RVs, you've been in American companies, Japanese companies, you're probably gonna be in airplanes next, but we do boats. You got any thoughts on that? And I said, yeah, I love boating, never owned one, but sure. And so I joined the company, uh, the CEO and I got along great. And he said, we have a boat division that's not doing well. It's not making money. And the quality of the products is not good. Um, you've seen it all, done it all. You want to give that a shot? I said, sure. Um, so I was living in Nashville at the time. And he said, we actually have a boat plant uh, in the Nashville area down in uh, Smyrna. And we've got 12 boat plant, uh, uh, plants. And, and I said, what, what are some brands? Well, have you ever heard of Chris Craft? I said, oh my God, Chris Craft. Oh yeah, that's the biggest, best in the world. And he says, it sort of is, but not recently. I said, okay. And so I went down to the Chris Craft plant and I saw some, some production things that they weren't doing right, some quality things, but I still loved their products. And so that was my shtick again, is I've got to go help the, this boating brand and this boating industry uh, company, amazing company, Outboard Marine Corporation, we got to turn it around. We got to do what we can do. So then the company is in the process of being sold. And um, there are several people that they're looking at, uh, but, but one of them is uh, Roger Penske. And uh, Roger takes a look at the company and decides to spend some time looking at the engine side because the engine side of the company was much bigger. We built Johnson and Evan Root engines. And then we had this boat division, which was not doing well. So we met and he said, I, I know you from the car industry. And I gave him my background. He said, yeah, what the hell are you doing here? And I said, well, I went to cars, to went to Japanese, to went to RVs and now boats. Um, well, everybody tells me we should sell off the boat division. I said, don't do that. We, I've already seen some things that I think we can improve on. And my gosh, with your leadership, if you buy the company, uh, we're just gonna rock and roll and we'll, we'll do this. And he said, um, where, where's your closest boat company and where's the plant? And I said, it's down in Smyrna. He said, all right, I'm gonna meet you there next week. How many shifts do you have? I said, we're rocking down there. We've got three shifts and we're exploding and it's doing great, uh, great quality, great products. And uh, he said, uh, tell you what, why don't we do the third shift together? Okay, have you ever been to the third shift? I said, no. He said, okay, we'll do it together. And third shift starts at 11 o'clock at night till five or six in the morning. And uh, he said, why don't we bring them dinner? Let's do dinner with them. I said, okay, I'll arrange all that. He says, I'll fly in on my private jet. Uh, they have a, 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 a runway there and we'll do it, we'll do it together. Okay, great. I am scared out of my mind. Never done a third shift. Hope I can stay awake all night because I sleep a lot. And, um, <laughs> and here I am with the potential new CEO. We had an awesome time. The third shift loved having me there, loved having obviously Roger Penske there. And we had a great hour and a half session with them. We brought food, dinner. The, the guys and gals there in that plant were fantastic and they were hardworking, they built good products and they were just fun to be with. And Did he buy it? Did he end up buying? He ended up not buying it. Okay. So in sharing this story, that was 20 years ago and, and uh, he may not want this to be shared, but I know it's not gonna go to anybody. So yeah, we'll kind of keep that private, not. Um, <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that's just part of the life story. And, and those kinds of stories, well, you asked me earlier, worth an entrepreneurial thing. It, it started at 10, but everything that I went through in my business career told me, you don't have to be in one place your entire life. You can do things different, learn from different leaders, learn from different cultures, from different industries. Um, yeah, I just loved it. So the boat from OMC, what, what, what was next? Where'd you go next? Yeah, so, um, Actually, that's when I, I did some uh, 
a consulting abroad. Yeah, in, you went to Korea the, and, and uh, Korea, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, yes. Um, worked for uh, one of the five sheikhs of Saudi Arabia, one of the five family members, and that was a different culture. Uh, amazing people, amazing uh, culture. Uh, that was really fun. Well, they had several um, General Motors dealerships, and they wanted an American face to, not the face of the dealerships, but an American experienced person with American companies because, you know, we deal with GM and come help those folks build and grow and turn around and fix what they need. So when over there, they had, uh, I think a dozen or more dealerships and visited them all and got to talk to the people that were running those dealerships and just brought some typically American and a few Japanese things to them on the dealerships and how do you talk to your customers and how are the products and all that stuff. So it was great. It was only a 30, 40 day assignment, but I was, and what's interesting, you need a, um, you need a, what's the word to get into Saudi Arabia, uh, a special, uh, not a special passport, but a special permit to get in. And they gave me that permit and they gave me my flight, but no return flight. <laughs> and, and at the time, I had two little babies at home and a wife. <laughs> and I said, bring your wife and babies if you want. No, I'd like to stay home at that time. Um, and, and I'm wondering, when do I get to leave? Um, so it was 30, 40 days later. They said, you have been amazing. Thank you so much for everything that you've done. Um, great. We take everything that you've said to task, and, and we're going to make sure that our people... Uh, run the way you tell them to run. So uh, that was kind of fun and cool, and I really enjoyed it. Did, when did you? So experience. when did you get into the motorcycle thing? I'm waiting for that story because that's. When <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, I guess I did that too, didn't I? Yeah. So. Um, so that's coinciding with me joining a Vistage group. Uh, I got invited to join a Vistage CEO group in, in Nashville. And uh, the group had a dozen CEOs in, all male at that time, mostly first generation, a couple of second generation. And at the time that I'm doing that and starting that, I get a call from a private equity company in Chicago. My wife now works for a private equity company in Chicago, not the same one, but she's rocking and loving it. And I'm so proud of her and what she's doing right now. But they called me and said, hey, um, you've been in cars and boats and RVs and all kinds of stuff. Um, we, we need a CEO of a, <clears throat> of a group that has a dozen dealerships in it. And they want to sell and we're thinking of buying them, but we need somebody to be the CEO of that group. I said, sure. They're in Florida. I said, great. Um, so I went to that company, interviewed the senior leadership team and interviewed what they do and how they do it. And uh, I called the private equity company back. I said, hey, I got a pass. What, what, what's the deal? Um, well, I like the industry now that I've gotten to visit some of these dealerships and so forth. Um, not really interested in that particular company and what they're doing and how they're doing it. So I got a pass. Uh, if you want to start one from scratch at some point, fine. But that, that's not one that I want to take over. It's more than I want to do. And they said, oh, okay, so hung up. Didn't hear anything. About three weeks later, three or four weeks later, they called me back and said, would you be interested in a startup? And I said, yeah, what do you got? Well, let's do the motorcycle industry and let's buy some motorcycle dealerships. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Um, uh, what do you want me to do? We got a young guy, he's kick butt, he's really, really good. Um, mm -hmm. University of Chicago grad, MBA, really great. He's yours now, he will help you, get you into the private equity, how it works, et cetera. And anybody that you wanna go travel and see to maybe potentially acquire a motorcycle dealership, he'll be with you. And by the way, we're not gonna pay you anything, but we'll pay you all your expenses. And I don't know how long it'll take you to put this together, but that's our deal. We're not paying you anything to do it until we put the deal together. And when we put the deal together, um, you'll have a sweet deal, but not now. So just expenses. You got to fly somewhere. You got whatever expenses you got to take to do this. You do it. Okay, great. 
So in about eight months, called on 200 motorcycle dealerships in the country, most by phone, uh, but a fair amount visually going there and visiting in various cities, California, Texas, uh, Northwest, uh, Northeast. And uh, I said, great, um, I'm ready to do this. And I found some candidates that, that I think would be good candidates to acquire. And they said, okay, uh, well, we're here in Chicago, so we'd like to base the company here. Uh, no, I'm not moving again. I've moved 18, 19 times in my career. I'm in Nashville. I want to start the company here. Oh, man. Um, but we did that. So they agreed to that. So I was based in Nashville. Well, good for you, because Chicago's not really great motorcycle weather most of, most of the year, it's, right? Anyway. Or any other kind of weather. Or any uh, other kind of weather. So <laughs> Nashville's a much better place for motorcycling. Much better. That's exactly right. And I didn't want to move my family again and all that. And so I said, no, I want to be based here. But I'm used to running national companies, so I have no problem traveling nationally. Yeah, well, I don't know that we want to do nationally. Uh, why don't we just have it a, a Chicago-based company and just let's buy half a dozen motorcycle dealerships here in Chicago. Okay, not bad at all, but no, I don't think I want to do that. That's not part of my plan. Um, why don't, let me put a business plan together on how this could work. Um, yeah, okay, work with the guy that we have sent you because he's great at that too. And so we did. We put a business plan together to be a national company. Uh, we bought our first dealership in Austin, Texas, our second one in San Diego, our third one in Boston, <laughs> then one in Pennsylvania, and then one in Detroit, and then Nashville, and then Alabama. He said, yeah, you really were serious about nationally. I said, that is correct. I want to buy the best stores at the best prices, and that's what's gonna help our company be profitable as we go forward. I said, okay, if you can pull it off. I said, I'm pulling it off, we're doing it. Um, so we did. We ended up buying 17 dealerships wow. in nine states. Um, we had 63 different brand uh, makeups at stores. Some were strictly Harley, uh, and some were BMW, and then others were mixed, Honda, Yamaha, Kawasaki, Suzuki. Uh, Polaris, Sea-Doo, uh, we, would, we would do stuff like that. But, and we would never buy, they encouraged me to look at folks that weren't doing well, we could buy them cheaper. I said, okay, um, but as I started to meet those kinds, they didn't have a good reputation in their community necessarily. I said, no, I wanna buy a good dealership and make them great. That, that's my MO, and so that's what we did. And in each market, we bought one of the better ones in every market, and we didn't change their name. We left the name of the company there. And in all but a couple of cases, we left the CEOs in place. The owner was there, you know the community, you know your customers, you got a great reputation, you wanna be a part of this. Well, yeah, actually, you're gonna buy my business? Yeah, we're gonna buy your business, pay you a ton, Let's be partners. Okay, great. And so that's what we did. That was that was our mo, and that model really, really worked. So well. did they? So you said in most cases out of the seventeen dealerships, the CEO, the founder of the that founder. motorcycle dealership, yeah. stayed on as the CEO of the dealership. That's correct. How long did they normally stay after they did that? I gave them all a three-year-plus contract. If you want it to be longer, it can be, but I'll keep you here for three years. I only had to fire one uh, before the three years was up. Uh, um, but that was it. The rest of them were great and they stayed longer. One of them is still there actually in that dealership and that's 15 years ago, uh, doing great. Um, I wanted most of them to be there and to stay because I didn't know how to spell motorcycles. I, I, I mean, you gotta be kidding. I knew HD cause I could hyphenate, but um, no. So I knew I needed these folks to be teaching me the motorcycle industry. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I knew about investing and I knew about what I wanted as a model, but riding a motorcycle, no. And when each of them that I would meet would, so what do you ride? Ah, uh, yeah, no, I don't, I don't ride. And I, I realized after about three or four times that I'm an idiot, you need to go get a motorcycle license and start to ride. Um, so I did, I did exactly that. And I bought my first bike was a Harley, uh, uh, their low, low price model and small model because I didn't want a big one. And so that's what I got, a Sportster. And so that was kind of fun though and I enjoyed it and I bought it in Austin, Texas and that's where I rode it. Um, eventually they shipped it to Nashville, but uh, that was fun and I said, okay. And so anytime somebody would say, so what do you ride? Yeah, I ride a Harley. 
Uh, oh yeah, Harley rider. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> didn't tell him that's that was two weeks ago. But yeah, that's okay. I just, yeah, I've ridden one. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. So, what was how was the motorcycle industry different than uh, the the automobile industry in your opinion? So many amazing ways, and it was similar to boats and RVs as well. And that is the people that buy a Harley or a Honda or a BMW and buy a boat and buy an RV. They don't do it for transportation. They're doing it for fun. I want this for enjoyment. I want it for excitement. Um, uh, we got into uh, selling to women buying motorcycles. Many of them would be, I just got divorced and that bozo's out of my life and I want to buy a Harley or I want to buy a motorcycle. And I want to, I've always wanted to do it. My husband didn't want me to do it. I'm doing it. So what, kind of a bike would be right for me. And so um, we did that. And women were 6% of the buyers when I started, and they were 15% um, just a few years later. And, and that, that was really, really cool. And a lot of couples would want to buy bikes together. Um, so, so when you want to buy a car, I need transportation. I need to get to work. I need to take my kids to school. Those are the kind of things you did, and yeah, I know you you bought Mercedes Benz too, and 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 that was more than just transportation. I got it, but still, that was the the real purpose. Buying a motorcycle or a boat or an RV, it's not for transportation. It's for excitement. It's for family vacations. It's for seeing the world. It's for being entrepreneurial, if you will, and that kind of tied into where I was as well. And it just fits. You know, people don't go to the car dealership on the weekend, just walk around and hang out. But they do that to motorcycle dealerships. They do it at a Harley store. They do it at a motorcycle store. They absolutely do. We had ping pong tables in our dealership. We had dart boards. We had fun stuff. Uh, always, had, always had barbecues on the weekend. And I would be the one flipping the burgers and cooking the dogs. And they, somebody would ask, uh, where's the owner? Oh, that's him over there the idiot that flipping the burgers and do it. Yeah, that's the owner. Really? And so they'd want to meet me and I'd want to meet them and just have casual, fun conversations with them. You don't do that in a car store. Well, that is why, and you know this because we've had this conversation, but that is why I am in pursuit of purchasing a motorcycle dealership. Because so after, cool. in my years of entrepreneurship and starting companies, I thought, you know, I love motorcycles. I love the culture. I love riding. I understand it. I, I, I want to do all things motorcycling. I don't ride as much as I'd as I would like to, sure. but I thought, well, let me, let me get into the motorcycling world. And so, as you know, I'm in, in the process of trying to purchase one. I'm in under a uh, letter of intent to purchase and waiting on the bank to give the approvals. And awesome. So I'm excited about that because Good. I do like the culture. I, I, I think that, you know, the idea of buying a motorcycle dealership or a motorcycle dealership in general, as you well have experienced, it's that camaraderie, the culture, the community that's built around it. And it is for fun and enjoyment. It's not just transportation. It's, that's exactly right. And, and so for me as an entrepreneur, that's an opportun opportunity for me to, to exercise a muscle that I haven't exercised before in the entrepreneurial world. I've not done retail before. I've not done that. So it's going to be exciting. And I'm excited for you to help me with that. I will be happy to help you with that. <laughs> Anything I can do with you, I will do it. You will enjoy it. I promise you that you will enjoy it. Yes, you will. Well, Vistage has been a big part of your story. So I want to take a couple of minutes and talk about Vistage. And I know that uh, some of the listeners have probably heard of Vistage. They know about it. But tell, tell first of all, just before we talk about your experience, yeah. what is Vistage? Vistage. Most people don't know about it. Most business owners don't know about it. It is uh, started back in the 60s. So it's a 65-year-old company, 70-year-old company coming on. And uh, we are now in 20 countries. Uh, we have 24,000 members. Whoa, what, what, what do you do and how, how did all that happen? And it started with four guys in Wisconsin. They'd meet for lunch once a month. Hey, wanna have lunch? Yeah, they were in four different industries, had four different businesses, but they were buds and, and let's just grab some lunch together. Okay, sure. And then they would be talking about things that turned out to be, even though they were different companies, different businesses and different industries, they had some similarities about people and about how do I grow my company? And when I'm short of cash, what do I do? And, 
there's people quitting and what do I do about that? And whatever the issue was, well, this is what I did in my company and here's what I did and that worked. And I tried this, but I bummed out on that and that failed. And so, and so the four of them are talking about, man, we have learned so much together over the months and years that we've been doing this. I wonder if we could make a business out of this. And those four guys founded Vistage uh, 60 some odd years ago, and it's been crazy ever since. And then left the United States and went to another country and then another country and another country, and that's why we're in 20 countries. And then they needed people to be able to talk to these entrepreneurs that would come to these monthly meetings to talk about what's working and what's not. Well, we need to hire some people to do that. I guess we need to hire some business people that know something about business, um, that know about running businesses that can help these entrepreneurs build their businesses. And so um, I, I, I was, I wanted to join, I was entrepreneurial, gonna start my own company uh, in the motorcycle industry, and yet I didn't know enough about building businesses. I thought that I did. And then I hear about a company called Tech, T-E-C. And it stood for the Entrepreneurial Company, T-E-C. So I joined Tech in Nashville, which within a, a year or two, uh, a company bought Tech out, which was a national company, and Tech actually is the one that started 60-something years ago. And a uh, company bought them out, and they wanted to change the name to something Tech. And at the time, the tech industry, T-E-C-H, is yeah, coming along. And it's confusing. We're, we're going to get confused with the tech industry. We're not a tech company. What are we going to do? And so one of the marketing agencies that this new company had said, we got to come up with an unusual uh, name. And so they combined Vistage with Advantage. So we want to have a, a vision, not Vistage, but we want to have a vision for the future and we want to have some advantage to what we do. And when you blend that together, it's Vistage. And of course, some people call us Vistage and they don't know what the heck we are. And that's okay. Uh, but we're Vistage and that's where it came from. And now it's been around for under the Vistage name for 15 years or so. So you, so you were with tech and that's how you ended up getting into that. That's what you used as a, uh, a kind of a, a leverage point of learning and, and, and mentorship to get into the motorcycle business. That's exactly right. And then now you are leading Vistage. You've won the Vistage Chair of the Year, what, five times? Your yep. Master Chair, yep. Rookie of the Year. Uh, and you've got over 70 people here in the Nashville market that are part of Vistage. So tell, tell everybody a little bit about how, what you're doing with Vistage and how they could get involved with Vistage. Sure. Um, I've, I'm one of uh, 500 chairs nationally. I think there are five others in the Nashville area, Tennessee area. Uh, I have coached most of them because Vistage has asked me, I got a new guy or woman on board. Could you help coach them? Let them come to your meetings for six months, do one-to-ones with them every month and, and talk about how to build their chair practice. So I have done that. Um, so what we do for a member is, um, it's pretty simple. Uh, we meet once a month as a group. Everybody signs a confidentiality agreement and nothing leaves that room uh, when we spend the entire day together. You have to agree to, to be there from eight to five. It's an all day practice. Uh, eight months of the year, we have a speaker come in that Vistage pays for and they have 1,500 speakers that they can adapt and work with each community and so forth. And I get to pick the speakers that we want, except I don't pick them. I go to my members and say, what business topics would you like to hear speakers talk about? So I go over the list of topics that Vistage has and pick the best speaker that is rated the highest. Uh, the highest you can be rated is five. And for me, they gotta be a five or four nine or four eight, but nothing lower than that. I want the best speakers on that particular topic. Um, so most meetings, we're going to have that speaker in the morning. Uh, then in the afternoon, we're going to do what we call issue and opportunity processing. What was that? Well, you joined Vistage for a reason. You're either trying to grow or you're trying to keep from going bankrupt or you're trying to buy another company or you want to change to a different kind of a, a, of a process. So we'll help you with all of that. Um, and those are the kind of topics that we'll talk about in the afternoon. And I will lead that 
issue and opportunity processing. Um, and Vistage has a unique way to, to process issues. Um, and, and I loved it when I was, was part of it. You know, I, I joined tech Vistage um, and I, I'm about to now start my own company. And I've been with world-class companies, Iacocca and the best people in the, on the planet, but I've never started my own company. So Vistage was the way for me to do that. So that's why I joined that. And those uh, entrepreneurial CEOs in there, I mean, they whipped my butt. I mean, they asked them, Tuh, why are you getting into this? And where are you getting the money from? And how are you doing this? And who's going to be your first hire? That was a key one. Who's going to be your first hire? And I thought, I've hired hundreds of people. I've fired hundreds of people, thousands. But I've never had a first hire. And I've never had a first fire. I mean, as my company now, and I have to hire my first per person. How am I going to do that? And so they walked me through all of those kinds of things that I knew nothing about. And so they were great. I was with that group for a couple of years, but by then we had already acquired two, three, five different companies. And now I'm traveling to Austin and San Diego and Boston and Detroit, and I couldn't come to their monthly meetings all the time. And I realized that I was going to be missing some. So I had to leave the group, unfortunately, which I missed a great deal. And, um, and so, yeah, that's how I got into it. And that's what Vista does. So we have monthly meetings. We have speakers eight times a year. Uh, if it's in the CEO group, that CEO owns me for two hours a month. And I do one-to-ones with all my CEOs up to two hours a month. Now, if they only need 30 minutes or an hour, an hour and a half, no big deal. But if they've got something really serious they need to deep dive into and they want to talk to me for two hours, they got me. And that's a big advantage uh, for the members as well. Mm -hmm. And some, I want to bring it up to the group, Clark, but, but um, I'm not sure how to uh, approach it with the group. So can you walk me through what I should talk about and how and what questions will they ask me and all that so I can kind of prep them on how to bring it up to the next group meeting. So that's what Vistage is all about. And CEO, uh, I have two of those CEO groups. There's 15 members in each. I have a C-suite group. They call it a key executive group. But those are people that are not CEOs, but they're COOs, CFOs, CMOs, CTO, all the C-suite kind of jobs. And I have one of those groups with 15 in it as well. And then uh, a couple of years ago, I started an emerging leader group, which Vistage, uh, Vistage wanted me to start, so I did. And those are mostly millennials, 25 to 35. I have one that's younger. I have one that's 41. I have a member that's 60. But there's 26 in that group. And that is all about who you are, um, your education, your background. Um, what do you think about? What do you want to be when you grow up? That kind of stuff. What's it like working in the company that you work in? And, uh, you know, a lot of folks... They don't know about millennials. Uh, yeah, I'm going to give them a job. I'll let them sweep the floor or something. No, I got two millennial sons. One's 30, one's 29. They kick butt and every millennial almost that I've ever met, they are sharp. They are good. They take risks. They'll do all kinds of work. They'll work all kinds of hours. Millennials are amazing and they're more than 51% of the workforce today. So some older, generally CEO that doesn't believe in millennials, you're missing it, buddy. I'm sorry. <laughs> believe in millennials. You're missing it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got a lot of great millennials that work for me. And uh, awesome. that, that tenure is almost, I think I got one's almost nine years. That doesn't happen, right? It doesn't happen. not supposed to happen, yeah, but bull. it does. It does. If you build the right culture and you got a good company, it, exactly it'll happen. That's right. Well, so how do people get in touch with Vistage? Is it Vistage.com? What's the, what's the website? Vistage.com is the website. It's a great website. Or Music City Chief Executives or Music City CEOs, excuse me, Com. Get onto that website. You'll learn all about me, all about my Vistage groups, uh, or call me. <laughs> yeah, so musiccityceos.com to get in touch with Clark Vitulli. Well, correct. Clark, as we get ready to close down our conversation, let me ask you this. This show is called The Root of All Success, and you've had tremendous success and failures, as we talked about, mm -hmm. back and forth. But what is your definition of that word success? Good. Um, Thank you. Um, I don't think we have time, so <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Thank you for doing that to me. Uh, I, I do have a definition of success, and it's where 
it's where each individual has to come from. I don't think there's one definition or one format or one road. It's got to be your road to success. And mine was divorced parents, a lot of travel back and forth, uh, moving 21 times in my career, uh, burning out two wives before I found the wife that I have, um, and children and mixed marriages and companies that you're starting and then helping other companies as they're going away. It's all of those kinds of things have been for me, my goal in life is to help another company be successful. And if I can do that, I'm successful. That's what I look at now as being successful. And I learned it at Chrysler because a lot of the Chrysler dealers, you know, 30 years ago were not doing well financially. And my job was calling on them to help them be financially successful. If they weren't selling enough cars or trucks, Clark, how are you gonna do that? Well, I don't know, I've never sold a car or truck, so I guess I need to figure that out first and find out what they're going through and what works and what doesn't, and then teach them how to do it. And I'd find one dealer that was really knocking the ball out of the park uh, selling cars and trucks, and I'd take some of those key learnings and I'd bring that around to, to other dealers and help them. And so for me, being successful is helping other people be successful, learning what it takes, failing repeatedly, and, and then learning how I have to change and be a better person. Uh, today anymore, for me, a good company culture is about growth, change, accountability, alignment and fit. Those are the five things today that make a company successful. And those are the things that have made my life successful. So I just steal from my own life and what I've had to go through and uh, growth, change, accountability, uh, you know, uh, alignment and fit. That's it. If those are working, you're working. That's great. Well, Clark, it's been such a pleasure to have this conversation with you to dig a little deeper into your story. What a, what a uh, interesting career. What an interesting career of going advertising to, to Chrysler, to Mazda, to OMC, to Mark III, to, to, to dealerships all over the country and motorcycling and yeah. finally getting you a Sportster. <laughs> Do you yes. still have the Sportster? No, I sold that and got a V-Rod and then oh, I, I just okay. I, I got bigger bikes after that and loved every minute of it. You still have any bikes at all now? I, I don't now. I sold my last one last year because I wasn't riding enough. I was yeah. riding my Harley to a Harley dealer who is a client of mine down in Murfreesboro. So my riding was Murfreesboro and back every single month, and which is fine. And I take the interstate sometimes, back roads others. I'm not riding enough. And my wife is a rider. She learned how to ride, but we weren't riding either because of her career and, and the things that she had to do. So it wasn't fair. So I eventually sold that bike and yeah. Well, well, thank you for the conversation and it's I appreciate great, you Jason. sharing the insights and I would encourage everybody to, to go look you up, musiccityceos.com. Well, thanks for tuning in on this show today. There you have it, another very successful person. Uh, had a different story of the entrepreneurship, right? It's not the traditional, went out and started a company and built that over years, but, but had this experience, Clark did, of working with these top level international companies learning how those companies go. And then he was smart enough to know that when it was time for him to start his own company, he needed help. And he reached out to Vistage or Tech at the time, it's now Vistage, and reached out to them and said, look, if I'm going to start this company, if I'm going to do this thing with these motorcycles in an industry that he's somewhat familiar with, but not specifically, he needed help. And that's what I, I'm glad, that's why I'm glad that you're listening to this show or watching the show if you're watching on YouTube, is because this is a way to get indirect mentorship through people like Clark and the other folks who sit in that chair across from me. And even for me, I mean, as we talk through this, you get indirect mentorship. You need to have a coach in your life. You need to have a mentor. You need to have someone to help you speed up the process because Clark could have done all that on his own, but it would have taken a lot longer. So you're gonna pay the money one way or the other. You're either gonna pay it in time or you're gonna pay it up front and learn it quickly. And that's what I do with my Business Accelerator program. So I wanna invite you to go to exitwithoutexiting.com. Check out my Business Accelerator coaching program. It's eight hours of live coaching with me where I take you through the four core strategies on how to accelerate your success in business. 
And what do people do with that when they learn how to eliminate stress and how to embrace delegation and establish systems? How do they invest in people? What do they do with it? Well, some of the people that go through the program eventually just sell their business and they exit. They can use that to accelerate that exit. Other people use it to accelerate a physical exit, but not a financial one. They just want, like I've done, exited companies where I didn't sell it and I've stayed owner and stayed connected to it, but I'm not in it. And then other people take that information and they use it just to get out of the weeds of the company so that they can expand into different areas. So no matter what it is that you need, you can get into the business accelerator by going to exitwithoutexiting.com and it'll change your life. So go to exitwithoutexiting.com, sign up for the next group cohort experience on the business accelerator. It will absolutely change your life. So tune in again next week when we talk with yet another very successful entrepreneur about his or her journey to success. Until then, I'm the real Jason Duncan and Jesus is King. Thank you for listening to another edition of The Root of All Success with the real Jason Duncan. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, we invite you to visit therootofallsuccess.com to access the show notes and other helpful resources. Take charge of your business. Grow it from great to incredible. Join us again next time here on The Root of All Success. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.